0: Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. We have so many verses at the interest of time, I'm not going to read them to you, but we will go through them one by one. Uh, Pray with me. Can you cut that echoing off, somebody? Father, we do thank you that... uh, We've been able to gather together here, Lord. We've had such a a great time worshiping you and drawing close to you. And Father, we turn to your word now. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, take these lips of clay, take your word, and let it go forth, Lord, and do that which only it can do. And that's change a human heart. That is what we desire today, Lord. We want to uh, leave here differently than uh, what we came in. ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In his book, Fuzzy Memories, Jack Handy writes, There used to be this bully who would demand my lunch money every day. Since I was smaller, I would give him my $2. Then I decided to fight back. I started taking karate lessons. But then the karate guy said I had to start paying him $5 a lesson. So after I did the math, I figured it would just be cheaper to go ahead and pay the bully. Well, the year was 1020 in the Valley of Elah, and it's there that we're going to look at a passage of scripture in which it was seen that like Jack Handy, God's people were willing to just keep paying the bully. I guess this would be one of the best known, if not the best known story in the Bible. And I'm sorry if you're looking for that, it'll be uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, I think around verse 30 or so. In fact, it is so well known that David's defeat of Goliath has become a metaphor for the victorious underdog. In this confrontation, David faced an actual giant, and that may seem far removed from our lives. I mean, on an average, on an average day, I don't bump into many true giants, but there are other giants, aren't there? Maybe your health is your Goliath, or maybe it's your marriage, or maybe it's that prodigal child, or maybe it's that job situation. Every day when you're confronted with nine-foot-nine situations and circumstances, it can be discouraging. So we must ask ourselves, how do we defeat the giants that are in our lives? What do we learn from David's giant killing that we can use ourselves? Because we all, from time to time, will have to face a Goliath. And so I would like us to look together this morning at the most famous giant killer of all time and see if we can't pick up some ideas and copy some of David's strategy. Look at verse 31 with me, please. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight the Philistine. And Saul said to David, "You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth." When you look at this, there seems to be a sharp contrast in how to battle a giant. Notice how Saul approached the situation. He kept putting it off, and the more that they delayed, the more intimidated that they got. And the more intimidated that they got, the harder the problem became for them to handle. It's the same thing when we battle our giants. We wake up every morning and we walk to that battle line. We look across the valley and see that intimidating problem standing there. And it happens day after day. And the more we delay in battling the giant, the more intimidating the problem becomes. And the harder it is to handle later on. It's been well said that there are people who make things happen, there are people who watch things happen, and there are people who don't know that anything is happening. Those who make things happen are facilitators, those who watch things happen are spectators. Those who don't know what's happening, well, they're just plain old taters. Now, David had insight into Israel's plight, and he knew what was happening. David's words, though, were outrageous in exactly the same way that the gospel of Jesus Christ is outrageous. To grasp the preposterous nature of David's words is to see something of the offense that the gospel has. David's gospel has two outrageous points. First, there was an imperative. Let no human heart fail because of Goliath, so do not be afraid. What kind of nonsense is that? Goliath embodied terror. To even think of his appearance and his threats were shattering to any human confidence. Faced with Goliath, there are many things that could be said, like run for your life or find a hiding place, but Let no man's heart fail. This is the most outrageous thing that anyone could have said to Saul in these circumstances. And it's just like the gospel that we know. Look at your great enemy if you dare. Think of your death, your death. Think of your sin. The most preposterous thing that anybody could say to you is, do you see how that is like the gospel of Christ? Think about that. Among the first to hear this were the shepherds. Do you remember the words that they heard? It says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. It said, Do not be afraid. Why? You will be saved by all your enemies, by someone who is wrapped in a manger and swaddling clothes. I think people find it hard to take the gospel seriously for just the same reasons that Saul had trouble taking David seriously. Quite frankly, it's the craziest thing that you've ever heard. Except perhaps for the second thing that David said. It was an indicative. The reasons why no man's heart should tremble because of Goliath was this. David said, I will fight him for you. Right. There ought to be a better word than preposterous to describe that proposition and how it must have sounded to Saul that day. Here is a small youth, skinny I like to think, too young to even leave home. It would have seemed absurd for Saul, Israel's biggest and best, to even consider taking on the Philistine monster. That's why he didn't, of course. But for this kid to tell the king that he didn't need to be afraid because he, David, would fight the Philistine... Is either just stupid or breathtakingly audacious. Verse 34. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both a lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Adrian Rogers tells about the man who bragged and showed his friend the tail of a man-eating lion he had cut off with his knife. Impressed, his friend asked why he hadn't cut the lion's head off. The man sheepishly replied, "Well, someone had already did that." <laughs> now, that wasn't the case with David. He explains this all to King Saul. And as a side note, historians say that upon hearing this, Saul was overheard to say, "Lions and tigers and bears, oh my." I'm not lying. Bear with me. Bear with me. Don't steal my jokes, Mitch. David had killed a lion and a bear, and he knew that the Lord could deliver him out of the hand of Goliath. It's as though that David sees Goliath as just another animal that is attacking God's flock. So we know that David's life was not all about the mundane and mundane, the routine. We hear him tell of this encounter he had with a lion and a bear. We watch, we watch he walks into the valley of a giant and kills him. We see him ignored, criticized, and underestimated. We will even see him as he is pursued and hated by King Saul. So we see that God used the classroom of adversity as a valuable tool designed to teach David about the power, provision, and the providence of God. And there are times also in our own lives when the monotony of our lives is shattered by the harsh blows of adversity. God's purpose in those times is not to hurt us, but to grow us. I don't mean to bring you down this morning, but the reality of it is most of the Christian life involves either being in a trial, coming out of a trial, or going into a trial. That is just how it is. God desires to teach us patience, faith, and dependence upon him. And in order to do that, he will sometimes send us trials and adversity. After all, nothing more can teach us about the love of God and the faithfulness of God than having him safely lead us through one of life's valleys. And in order to do that, he will send us trials and adversity. So here David is remembering the past faithfulness of his God. He recalls the times that God had delivered him before and is just as certain that God will still remain faithful in what he is going through now. But we are prone to forget that, aren't we? We only remember the things that we want, like the good old days, which, by the way, is most often a product of a bad old memory. The good old days weren't always good. I had pimples in the good old days. And so the things that God has did in David's past wasn't so he could regale his grandchildren. You can almost imagine the scene at Thanksgiving. Did I ever tell you that time that I killed that bear? And his grandkids are thinking, oh, no, not the bear story again. But when it comes to God's faithfulness, we should always remember how many times he has brought us through. And we should use those memories as a springboard for our faith. David was strengthened by his past experience. He could look back upon a day when he slew a lion and a bear. And so the confidence that you may have as you go out in the name of the Lord today is that in the pages of your memory, you can find days when you face a situation that was absolutely impossible. But the Lord stepped in and gave you the victory. This isn't the first time you have stood against a Goliath. Verse 38. So Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a bronze helmet on his head and He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not yet tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. David must have looked comical in Saul's armor. He was probably swimming in it. But look at what he said. I have not tested them. Saul's idea was to dress him up and make him look as much like Goliath as he could. David, however, renounced that whole principle, realizing the words of 2 Corinthians 10.4, which read, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Or in the words of Zechariah 4.6, It's not by might nor by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. David had not yet tested the armor, but he had tested his God, and he had found him to be completely faithful. And it's one of the greatest ministry lessons in all of the Bible, and it is this. When God calls your eye to whatever he wants us to do, we need to be ourselves and fight with the weapons and the abilities that he has given us. None of us can be successful in trying to be somebody that God has not endowed us to be. I mean, I know I tell corny jokes, and I can't baptize right. But in the words of that great theologian, Popeye, I am what I am. Verse 40, please. Then he took his staff in his hand, he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in a shepherd's bag, in a pouch which he had, And a sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field." There have been countless opinions of why David chose five stones. Why did David grab five stones? Is this a lack of faith? Now, no one can say for sure, but we do know that Goliath had four brothers and four sons. Now, that makes a nice sermon point, but I don't know if David had that info. Perhaps David is just being reasonable, thinking it's probably going to take more than one stone to bring this guy down. No one knows. Here's something else the text doesn't tell us. The brook where David got his stones was in the middle of the valley between the two armies. That means David didn't have his ammo until he gets to the brook. Sometimes God will ask us to do something, and from our standpoint, it may look like that we are unprepared. It's only as we take that initial step of faith that God reveals the next step we are to take. This is what the scripture calls walking by faith, and it's how that we learn that God is always faithful. David is already completely committed to the battle, and now there is no going back. In other words, he has burned all of his bridges behind him. And you know what? That's often the only way that we can defeat the giants that are in our lives. There are certain giants that are only going to fall when we are fully committed to the battle. Romans 13:11 says this: Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone; the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Here's the key. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. What does that mean, make no provision for the flesh? It means if you have a problem with alcohol, you empty your house of all of it and you avoid places that serve it. If you struggle with pornography, you get an internet filter. If you binge eat when you get depressed, you find a friend who will take a walk with you instead. There are really no set rules with the things that we struggle with, but it is up to us to find ways not to make provision for our flesh. Connie and I, for example, are trying to lose some weight. Actually, let me take that back. It's not Connie, it's just me that's trying to lose some weight. Thank you. I'll pay you later. But anyway, what I'm proactively doing is not having chips or Little Debbie's or anything that tastes good in the house. Do you see how that works? I'm not providing a way for me to blow my diet. My diet, not Cotton's. You're thinking you need to make a provision for not lying in the pulpit is what you need to do. (laughs) But anyway, back to our story. Goliath looks at David, and he is greatly insulted. I mean, he's looking for a good fight, and they send out this cute little redheaded kid. You put boys like that in the choir, not on the battlefield. From Goliath's viewpoint, David probably looked like a mix of Urkel, Pee Wee Herman, and Barney Fife. Verse forty five. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines of the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save a sword and a spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. One thing we need to remember this morning is David has never read this chapter. This is all happening in real time for him. It's not like he got up that morning and said, "Ooh, ooh today is that part in the Bible where I kill Goliath." This is one of my favorite chapters. I love this story. I believe the reason that David has no fear lies in the fact that God has promised to make him the next king of Israel. And until that happens, David was indestructible. But the same thing is true for you this morning. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That tells us that God is the author and the finisher of our faith. You know what else? If you are a Christian this morning, you have nothing to fear from the enemy. Why? Because we are so great and powerful? No. Man is but animated dust. But we serve an all-powerful king who also happens to be our father. And that's good news this morning. Now, the time for action has finally come. In the narrative, it has taken 47 verses to get to this point. But like in the New Testament Gospels, when the critical moment arrives, the action is recounted with surprising brevity. Look at verse 48 with me. So it was, when the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hastened and ran towards the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. Here it says that David ran to meet Goliath. And I have to believe that Goliath, upon seeing this, thought to himself, this is something new. This is different. I've seen a lot of people run away from me, but I've never seen anyone run towards me. The poor child, he's probably completely insane. I'll put him out of his misery and this is just my imagination. Don't take notes on this part. But I don't think that Goliath even saw the stone coming at him. I think it was hurled with amazing speed. I can almost imagine him asking his armor bearer, Do you hear something whistling? So David takes the stone and slings it at Goliath. And the stone doesn't just hit his forehead and bounce off. The Bible says it went in like and stuck there like a bullet. And I have to wonder that right at that moment when your life flashes before your eyes and Goliath is falling and the ground is rising up to meet him, I have to wonder that if the last thing in his head was, I cannot believe this is happening. Actually, I guess the last thing that went through his head was that rock, but you know what I mean. I wonder if everyone was thinking, it's a trick. It's a trap, David. As soon as you get close enough to him, Goliath's going to grab both your legs and beat you on the ground. But instead, it says Goliath fell on his face. And it reminds me, if you remember, back in 1 Samuel chapter 5, where the Philistine god Dagon kept falling on his face in the presence of the ark of the Lord. And really, it's just as fitting as the God that Goliath was trusting in had no more power than Goliath had himself. Verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him, and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sharem, even as far as Gath and Ekron. And the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in the tent. Well, here's a, a problem here. David had promised to cut the head of Goliath off, but he doesn't have a sword. How can he do that with just a sling? Well, I mean, I guess he could saw through his neck eventually, but it would take a long time and be very messy. It's like in the New Testament where they talk about getting a camel through an eye of a needle. You can do it. You just need a really good blender. But David has a better idea. He takes the giant's own weapon and decapitates him with it. That's kind of like somebody shooting you with your own gun. In verse 46, David promised to remove the head of Goliath. And so he did. Do you know what that teaches us about David? He knew how to get a head in life. Sorry, I had to do it. If you can imagine, in the last few verses, you can see David walking around with his giant head in his hand. All the veins, all the blood, that big, ugly, battle scarred face swinging from David's hand as a trophy. Of God's faithfulness. It says he stripped the giant and took his armor and put it in his tent. Later, Goliath's sword is going to show up with the Jewish priest and knob, so David must have dedicated it to the Lord by giving it to the priest. You'll be thinking, well, that was a real nice story this morning, but the problem is my Goliath is still very much alive. That marriage problem is gigantic. The health of that child is gigantic. The job loss is gigantic. The financial problem is gigantic. It is then that we learn that every time the giant trespasses and tries to establish control over our lives, we learn from this passage that giants can be defeated. But what is sobering about this account, I think, is that while we see that giants can be defeated, we see that the overwhelming majority of God's people are content instead just to live with them. Fully content to settle for a standoff with the enemy and allow them to enter into areas of our life that belongs to God alone. David was different from every other man that was there that day. He was the only one that dared to look higher than the nine feet of giant. David was the only one who looked over Goliath's head and to the God who is the supreme ruler of all the universe. The most crucial aspect of this story, I believe, is the importance of remembering the faithfulness of our God. At one time in the past, that circumstance in your past looked as big as Goliath did this morning. And yet, here you sit today, you have outlived that circumstance. You've outlived that trial, and the head of that trial is now a trophy in your hand. So, that circumstance that you may be facing today, though it may be greater than any that you have ever encountered, you have also been greatly prepared to face it. There's an old saying when the outlook is bad, try the uplook. When Jesus taught us to pray, he began by saying, Our Father who art in heaven. And by saying that, he reminds us to look up and pass the nine feet of whatever Goliath is shouting across the valley and ridiculing and taunting our faith. And with that in mind, our victory is never an issue of if. It's only an issue of when. We don't fight for victory. We fight from the standpoint of victory. And that victory was won on a bloodstained cross. And one day you'll carry the head of that trial as a testament to your faith and the faithfulness of your God. And, Father, we just thank you, Lord, that we know that you are the great giant killer in our lives. Everyone in here has some Goliath, I believe, who tries to taunt them and ridicule them and make them feel as if they are never going to overcome. But, Lord, we know that you are the great overcomer. I pray, Lord, that we would walk in that truth. Reveal to us the things that you would have us to do in cooperation with what you want to do, Lord. We ask in your name. Amen.